0: Carlton in Victoria grows a rather large grape crop (laughs) because it's basically Italian and and Greek neighbourhood and it (coughs) grows it on trellis in city and if you look at the trellis very often it's a trellis which covers the western side of the house even to the roof. So the house sits in there and your grape grows here. Well that's a marvellous thing because you're getting a crop you're, you're saving tremendous amount of heat energy in summer, and it looks good. Therefore, there's no reason not to combine you know, production with, with conservation, energy conservation. In fact, we should do that. Uh, they actually have a, a community wine press in the old um, Carlton railway station. So you cart your grapes in, you, you pay a charge on the press, everyone makes wine. Uh, when I was up at Campbelltown, and I'll tell you, I, I kind of urged the idea of FPCs, or food processing centres, as a community service system. I consider that the critical second-level strategy after production. The first thing one must mulch in a garden is one's recipe books. Number one thing into the mulch: shred them, everyone you've got. The thing you must never mulch is those books that tell you how to preserve and extend uh, yield. And uh, there's only one or two of those. Well, the most excellent one I know is one called Putting Food By. It tells you how to take your cabbages, ferment them and keep them all the year. So you've got a higher value food over a long period. And the food FPC is a food processing centre idea and it's basically a community service. No individual wants a food processing centre. What does it supply? It supplies the processing machinery for you to extract uh, juices and fruits or to distill your food. And it supplies the containers at wholesale for you to take the product home. Uh, and supplies those according to health regulations in your district and it's serviced just exactly like a, a laundrette is serviced, right? You have somebody present who can change your money into two bob pieces or supply you with soap if you forgot to bring your soap uh, and you pay uh, basically what is a wholesale rate on containers and you pay an energy rate on the use of the machinery and you go home with your product in good order. The other thing about them is they're nice places, rather like laundrettes. I quite like laundrettes. I don't know what, he, what he else who does. You meet people. It's informal. A lot of marriages happening in Sydney are happening from laundrettes. You go there with your socks and you meet somebody bringing their underpants and you talk. in this informal atmosphere. Watch a bit of television. sit in a steamy atmosphere and sort of discover each other. <laughs> Food processing centres are very much like that. People with common interest in production, common interest in food preservation come there and you get a lot of help. But as it is a service centre, if you wanted help, the person there in any case can tell you how to put up your peas, what's the best way to do it for the highest food return. These uh, pay back very quickly too. There's now groups in the United States who go around and advise you on setting up PC. So food processing centres are really uh, critical uh, steps. They are the mudroom of the city. They're the step between the garden and the kitchen, not to be lightly looked upon. They're immensely popular, uh, very good social centres, and they provide excellent living and service to the community. Again, now we're looking at the city and urban situations, less as a matter of food processing centres can be set up... uh, by a suburban action group or a, uh, by a regional group, set them up in the United States, or by, uh, simply by private enterprise. You set them up and offer them as a service like you do a laundrette. Laundrettes are only set up by the mafia, curiously enough. Why is that? They wash more than clothes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll notice with a lot of laundries, if you can always tell if it's mafia-owned, because when there's nobody in the laundry with clothes, you'll see a gentleman sitting there drearily putting money through the machines. It means that they're washing their gambling money. What what we need to do and what uh, we're slowly, uh, very awkwardly, uh, learning to do is set up small groups who are action-based to get these policies or strategies running uh, in the (coughs) urban context. And they they work just as well, of course, because we flip-flop a bit urban to rural, works just as well in the rural context. Food processing centre works just as well and so does the IPM or what you go and look at a farm and say, What's your problem? It might be fencing, it might be pests. So what over so we take it right off your hands? So I wish you would because there just aren't enough people on the land today. It's too hard to manage this farm, keep my fences in order, get my windbreaks planted and get my wheat crop in. It's nearly impossible to do it. So you forget your fences and your windbreaks. You just get on the wheat crop and we'll work out a charge for you. it will be very little more than what you would have paid if you did it yourself. You've got a deal, you'll say. What's more, we'll say, you'll get more wheat. This is being done very successfully. The group teams in the United States, is ITCI. Oh, they're pretty busy. It's the International Three Crops Institute. What are they busy doing? germinating trees, double-fencing and planning out windbreak under contract. And they've got a booming business. It just In the last two years, it's just taken off like a rocket. There are. It's a nice happy occupation, going windbreaking in an area like... Uh, what's that central Victorian wheat-growing area? Witchy-proof. <laughs> Go set up in witchy-proof. As a windbreak expert, you'll never look back. And you'll have the pleasure in your old age in looking out across, but it's apparently a forested landscape. <laughs> I think I, I think we ourselves would have paid for windbreak, put in a windbreak, except we get a bit of communal fun out of it, but uh, a lot of it is just a drag. We'd rather sell a few more books and pay someone to put in some windbreak at times. Right now, for instance, if you offered us to put in the next lot of windbreaks, you'd be accepted straight away. We're all fed up to here with windbreak cleaning. After the first eight or ten thousand trees, it gets a little bit of drag, you know. Now, do you want to probe the common work model any further to your own satisfaction, or do you think you could now rough your own out with a little bit of thought? You've got the proportional breakup of profit, you've got the idea of the model, uh, and it's an open situation. Now, just from common sense, you'll see that some of the activities in common work need very little capital, <clears throat> for instance, the growing of a commercial crop. Seed and seedlings are very cheap and the end product can be quite quite uh, rewarding. Uh, let's take the very opposite of that. What needs a high capital interest for the return? Uh, that here looks to us like a large glass house. That would be the most expensive capital input, except, let's think again. What say we may even contract uh, as energy? People in the town. What would we do on on the swamp, which would enable us to be energy contractors? We could use solar ponds, and we will reserve areas for solar ponds. Uh, compost seems to be a natural for us, and that is, in addition to what we can get off the property, what other sources of compost might we use? Seaweed and the rubbish tip. We might actually take on a garbage collection function. To supply fuel. Uh, These are all open uh, here at present. All we did was to secure the means uh, like we took a lease out on the seaweed. We can offer that, we're offering that as a living, no one's taking it up, the composting of that to Alpamod. If no one takes it up the Institute will go right ahead with a common work fund, capitalise it and start to run it and then hand it over as a business. So don't worry if you haven't got a volunteer. You start it with your common work, your 70% fund, capitalise it, start the business, and then sell it as a business. Because people always buy into a business, but they won't buy into an idea. Now, we don't give a damn who makes uh, alpinite out of seaweed as long as alpinite is made out of seaweed. That's our aim, really. And also is that our capital is paid back with interest. Because if you've put 70% of your garlic money into a seaweed processing centre, you want it back. Therefore, that business has to pay it off with, with interest. Well, here at present, because we're a very tolerant group, we would let you use a tractor to put in a crop, and you would pay back for your tractor use after your crop comes in. We have put in, you know, a modest modicum of capital to set it up where at present you can run crude incomes uh, with the present crude equipment. Also, uh, many of you, I don't know if we would like to total it up in the room, I don't know how many thousand acres we own it's a lot of acres it would be an interesting exercise for one of you to perhaps to go around and say how many acres do we own but some of us own in excess of a thousand acres and some of us 50 acres and 30 acres now what's coming off that land what is the product off that land Uh, and if we then add that up it looks pitiful against the area of land I want to make a statement which I deeply believe that the the buying of land in the alternative nation group should come to an end. It should finish right now. We should buy no more land. What we should turn our attention to is how to get this land into production and the people onto the land and the capital uh, to get that land producing because the alternative nation lacks a product. It doesn't have a market impact. You can forget it. The proportion of the market actually supplied by organic or biodynamic growers you can put in a corner of your eye. And it's not because they don't own perhaps even more land than the commercial growers, it's because they've never capitalised the land for production. Now, but let's take another statement. As far as we can foresee, the proportion of market open to organic growers is close to 100%. That is, the demand for organic product is almost total as against inorganic product. Therefore what you're looking at is a slightly ridiculous situation. A lot of hippies running around with a lot of land, nothing to do, no product, and a market wide open waiting for them which will buy futures and options on on that product. So for about 12 months uh, I've been seeing our role, as far less that, of actually designing properties in, in the production mode and actually getting into, uh, enabling the product to flow. I mean, is there anybody in the world, I mean there's a lot of contract garbage collecting, is there anybody in the world contracting with households to sort their garbage, pre-sorted garbage? Yes, quite a few. you collect yeah. their garbage for nothing, mm. as long as it's sorted yeah. this Oxfam like. does it in England. What you do, actually they even provide the collection things, that provide they provide seven colours of bins. They provide the bins, they provide seven colour-coded bins to the household. Oh, and just a lot of money banks. That's their largest income. I collect... one-seventh of the garbage of one city, and I think they're grossing £64,000 a year from it. Well, the idea is not to ask the government the what you can on. do, but to set up a private enterprise system which is totally legal, in which you contract to purchase garbage and go. just, do just the run down it. The Council will collect the garbage for nothing. Yeah. You know, the contractors is to pick up the mixed garbage. I'll collect the sort of garbage sure. for nothing from all those households. Yeah. Yeah. So the Council will do it. Maybe, I think it's not an inappropriate place while we're waiting on the kitchen team. It's not an inappropriate place probably for us to discuss garbage and a garbage as a unit is the main uh, income product of a city. Now, what are the practicalities of using it? Well, they look very practical. There's some capital sometimes needed. What Oxfam did was pretty interesting actually. It took a small portion of one city, which is all you can handle, and supplied colour-coded garbage bins. And I think there were seven, and I'll try and remember them. There was food scraps. There was paper, books. (laughs) Books and organised material as separate from paper, glass. Uh, Gifts that were unwanted or repairable items. That was their first big financial success. Uh, plastics, I think. Anyhow, I'll lift one out. Ah, metals. Yeah, they had seven cans and the, you had your code up, little code in the kitchen, little code card, and you had your seven cans. Um, they made, uh, their largest income initially, of course, was here because the <coughs> things that somebody gave you, you didn't want, you know, the Ormalu clock and, you know, all the things people buy, you, you just don't want, you just and give it to Oxfam. It's a nice legal way to get rid of it. So they set up, uh, this was immediately sold and, and of course most of the things people throw out like pop-up toasters. If you've got somebody who understands a pop-up toaster it's often a matter of taking the side off, adjusting the spring, the pop-up spring, clipping it back in and away she goes again. There's really not a repair, it's an adjustment system. The same with television sets. you often find that somebody's done something silly like, like throw one of the wrong switches on and they throw the television set out. This is a case on the tip-out here. We, pick, uh, we were always picking up machinery which works off the tip. Uh, radio sometimes in which uh, it's been on uh, FM and it doesn't work because people are dialing away on AM and they throw the bloody radio out, for God's sake. Actually, you know, it's very common. Washing machines, another very common one in which the switch has failed. They're throwing out washing machines with a belt missing off the drive. Therefore, things that you think may be able to be repaired or uh, gifts that you didn't want that are organised material, this is immediately then taken to retail. It's retail is second hand. Books are in the same category and you sort them through and get them into their categories and retail them straight away. Paper. is a saleable item providing you have a recycling system and in this district we do have. We can sell all our paper. And glass is the same and a surprisingly high income from glass, either broken glass or whole glass, providing the collection problems not too great. I, go, I could go on a little bit about glass. Uh, I spent some years as a scientific glass blower. Most organised glass like, say, a, a clear... Weird, isn't it? A clear <laughs> bottle. You need an oxygen tank and a, a settling tank and a bench thing. You can convert uh, glass as it is into a huge number of very saleable items. Uh, Fisherman's glass buoys are very expensive things. You can you can just knock them out as fast as you can pop bottles into a lathe, glass lathe, you know, and nothing too. Even the trendies hang up fishermen's boards and nets for the decorations, for God's sake. But glass, uh, you can make uh, little vacuum pumps out of bottles. Because one thing a long neck bottle is excellent for, it's about the best design for a jet, for, a, for a, uh, a turbine that you can actually make. And it's the best type of jet, it's the most friction free. So you can draw down jets for turbines out of glass. Best jet of all, just sink them in a concrete block and zoom. (coughs) Never buy a jet for your turbine if you've got a wrong neck bottle. Uh, Up here, food and organics. Uh, The city farms in London are making a major part of their income from uh, building material recycling. You need a brick cleaning machine. You can sell good old-fashioned bricks with (coughs) convicts. A very good thing to have there is uh, an alkali bath. So you can drop your doors in and scale all the bloody wood off. As soon as you do it, the door falls to pieces if it's glued. But what you get out is clean timber which you re- can re-glue. And you get a very respectable looking door out of a, a ten times painted door. Take the paint off most furniture and you have a very good piece of furniture. You can recycle building materials and wood itself, of course, which you can convert either chip it or, or what they do in England is put it through saws and thicknesses and bring it down to a commercial size, slightly smaller than what it was when it was all dented and burst about. <coughs> Big industry, really, in England now. and It can be sold as new, but kiln dried. Food, now, that's becoming... Uh, food scraps are becoming uh, valuable because there's now a sort of standard uh, butyl rubber bag Uh, It's a present sold in 10,000-gallon units, one holds 10,000-gallons, in which you can continually pump food scraps, uh, put them through a a mechanical hog, and uh, put them into a semi-slurry, and which continuously generates enough methane for eight vehicles to run on, and that's quite a nice income too. Uh, again, you need a pump-down system so you can fill... An, a, more or less, you're a service station to a local fleet, not a long-distance fleet because you can't refill on methane uh, over 100 miles away. But it's a fleet with a 100-mile range. You can service from a relatively modest amount of food scrap. New Zealand has started to do that very widely now. The cost uh, is pretty accurately down, I think, what is it a litre for petrol now? Fifty-two is it in New Zealand? Hmm. The cost is 37 cents a litre equivalent. So what we're right, we're right now we're looking at systems which are cheaper than gasoline. I've got the figures. I got it off a recent ABC science show in which the New Zealanders were discussing what they're doing about this. when, when you're not getting food scraps they're collecting thistles and <laughs> jamming those into these beautiful rubber bags and getting them leaves or uh, farm rubbish and whacking those into those bags. So on a common work system, you'd do very well to provide a small area for your uh, energy systems. Um, and Nevertheless, there isn't one of these items that, uh, that is not being buried by bulldozers all over the place at all times, the whole bloody lot of them. Therefore, and, and it's often illegal to collect at, uh, at dump mm. and you have to organise to collect its source. Now, I believe there's another class of materials in here that we ought to look at and they are what I'd call mulchables. That is chipped wood of poor quality, chipped branches. Now, you get money for chipping them and money for the chips. Because the demand for multiples is rising and the price is pretty stiff in the town for these things. You sell them actually by the bloody bag. You can see them, uh, and the results of compost, you know, compost itself is a pretty stiff price per placky bag. You buy this little bit of, uh, I don't know, orchid potting soil at five dollars <laughs> or something oh, like that's this. Insane. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. So the whole area of of organic mulchables, that to me includes organic carpets and bags, which are all shreddable, shreddable paper, which is otherwise no good, soil paper, all come into the area of mulchables or compostables. Uh, Much as I'd love to get into this, there's not enough of us here to really get into it, but we could set it up for the town um, pretty easily, and we've thought about it. Um, Most we could probably do as far as this town is concerned is to provide the wherewithal for someone to do it. We could provide the chippers and uh, and so on for someone to do it. Uh, This is really worth a lot of money and East Germany just uh, did a dirty trick on West Berlin not not so long ago within the last six years. They contracted, they gave them a 30-year contract for their garbage. So every day what you see is the East German train standing in West Berlin. West Berlin garbage trucks come in I and mean, off it goes to East Germany and they make a hell of a lot of products out of it. And West Berlin has just discovered it's really sold off its main wealth producing primary industry, that is its rubbish. And it's what's more, it's lost it for 30 years ahead. Therefore what the East Germans have done is develop a whole recycling technology based not only on their own garbage but on West Berlin's garbage. And West Bullion hasn't even got the technology underway because it hasn't got the raw materials for the base of the technology. Therefore, in 30 years, time it's very likely they're going to have to renew the contract. Because otherwise, the capital cost of developing the recycling technology is too high. This is already coming into recycling. Uh, I don't know whether in Sydney or in Melbourne, there are no plastics that they don't take into to recycle now. None. They take the lot. And so... Uh, that's also back Australians uh, now plastics are into recycling too. Uh, what is maybe not economic on a very large scale is a very economic proposition for a small small scale group. If you have eight motor vehicles, it's much more economical for you to produce your own fuel than it is, say, to try and go into providing for fifty on contract. The other thing is, of course, it's tremendously advantageous to be in organic recycling if you are coincidentally in growing because uh, once you've extracted methane, you have a very good use for... uh, I'm just doing a deal with a local septic tank pumper for the summer (laughs) to run along our tree lines and let the septic tank material go along. And he said it's not possibly legal, but he'll probably do it for us. Uh, The other thing is to set up your own septic tank pumping service, which would be fantastic if you're also in tree growing. How fantastic is that on a city level? As I say, you know, when it comes to pumping out a city's garbage, it will provide, in tree crop, in biomass, 60% of the energy of the city. That's the sort of trade-off you've got. Now, that's no longer in doubt. What I'm talking about, which is even more amazing, A city's at about the latitudinal level of Massachusetts or of Tasmania where in winter there's very little growth. So it's already economic to use all of a city's sewage to grow trees even in these high latitudes. So just what it would mean to Cairns or something would be right off the wall. I mean Cairns pumping its sewage onto a tree system which it sold as as fuel. Uh, would have maybe 200% of its total energy needs out of its sewage. Sydney, another area where it would be right off the wall just exactly how much organic growth you would get out of that sewage. Adelaide, another excellent place to convert to biomass from sewage. This is the biggest problem, Bill, that in the city they've allowed the, uh, a lot of other things to get into the sewage apart from well, I've right? got two answers for you, they're all recyclable, eh? They're, they're recoverable as metal, but the other answer is that until you use your sewage as a biological recycling system, you don't ever clean it up. While you're running it to sea as a waste, you are not concerned that it contains illegal metals. As soon as you start to run it into a biological system, two things happen. The first thing, which we've already spoken about, the biological system removes the heavy metals and then they can be removed from it. But the second thing is suddenly your city becomes very concerned about illegal dumping and and stops it. Now, I reckon a marvellous example of that was at Maryborough, right, where we set up sewage lagoons which preceded... Uh, First of all, a grazing and then a forestry situation for the sewage use. Within three or four months, the top lagoon star stopped working. It uh, was already producing a lot of ducks, some 4,000 ducks were flying off it. Mm. We later put some islands in for duck nesting sites and we planted a lot of trees around it. Now, when the stop lagoon stopped working, they said, Why is that? Because suddenly, you notice there's no ducks there and no life in the wood. In the second lagoon, it was still working quite well and they discovered that the levels of uh, of chromium in the top lagoon were so high that it wouldn't support organic system. If they hadn't been concerned with an organic system, they would never have either seen it or cared about it. I want to put out another thing to you. This water is soon after used by the next town downstream and it's used nine times, right? So the fact that they would not have been concerned would have meant that chromium went into the water supply of nine towns downstream. (coughs) As soon as they saw the failure of the organic system they were immediately able to say well we have a pollutant which is a biocide. It turned out to be chromium. Every city has legislation which prevents you from doing that. That is not legal to do that. So then uh, for the first time in the history of Maryborough they applied the legislation and they applied it to a tannery and a guy said well I employ seven men, I have the right to dump this chromium in your sewer, otherwise seven guys will get unemployed. So they said, no, you don't have the right. You've got to recycle it or at least pond it properly. And the guy said, well, I'm going to reserve the right. So he went on dumping, so the city closed him down. Now, they closed down the tannery. They did an intelligent thing. They brought in two engineers under contract from, from Melbourne, actually. And they worked out a a chromium recycling system for that tanning plant. And the city put it in. The city of Maryborough paid for the recycling equipment. Now, the recycling equipment amortised in 18 months. Now, they put the the tannery... They offered the tannery guy to go back to work and his seven employees back to work. Now, he had a a chromium recycling plant. They didn't... They put them out of work, but they put them out of work for four and a half months then they put them back to work and said now we don't want any more chromium dumping, you have no excuse at all. Now if you dump this time we'll put you out of work for good because what you're doing really now is dumping even though it's profitable not to dump. So what I say to you is until you start to use sewage, of course you'll get dumping in it because who cares. Once you've got to that end thing where you're really running your sewage to waste, who gives a damn what else is in it? Nobody once you've got to the stage of New York and and Sydney of pumping it to sea, you don't care if it's full of radioactives and sludges and God knows what. It's only when you're using it as a resource that you will ever clean it up. And this is very powerfully my approach. Let's use it and then we'll clean it up. As long as we're not using it, we'll let it stay dirty. You can foul your nest as long as you're not living in it.